Uh, if you've been regularly here over the last few weeks, you'll know that we're going through a series in the Lord's Prayer, and I know you probably know it well, but I'm just going to take a moment to read it to you. If you want to follow it, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 6, that's the one I'm reading, reading from verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Some things lead to life. Some things lead to death. The Bible is full of stories that teach us this profound and simple truth. Mostly, that is exactly what the stories in the Bible are given to us for, to teach us that some things lead to life and some things lead to death. And I'm wondering this morning, which things do you mostly choose? Do you mostly choose things that lead to life or do you mostly choose things that lead to death? Here it seems to me is the challenge. Some things look good, they are pleasing to the eye, but they lead to death. You may remember 20 years ago, a film, which is a fantastic film, called A Bug's Life was released. Remember that film? If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's a great teacher. It's a story of a colony of ants who are in the pay of a group of grasshoppers, and every year they have to provide enough seeds for the grasshoppers, otherwise the grasshoppers are going to do nasty things to them. We are going to watch a very short clip, and it is very short, and I'm going to ask Mark if he can play it twice, because I don't want you to miss it, because it's really important to everything that follows, just building up so you're awake when you see it. This is one of my favorite parts of the film, but has a deep and profound truth and something to say to us today. Mark, can we play the clip? I have no wish to be morbid, but it's so good we've got to watch it again. <laughs> I just don't want you to miss it. Especially what they say to each other. No! Harry, no! Don't look at the light! I can't help it. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it looks good. It is pleasing to the eye, but it leads to death. Here's the thing, though. In real life, only a bug would be that stupid, right? In real life, only a bug would fly to the light knowing it leads to death, right? Or do you know something I don't know? It's not true, is it? In fact, it's profoundly untrue. History is littered with stories of people who walk toward the light 
when it only led to death? How many marriages have been destroyed because one of the couples saw something that was pleasing to the eye? How many famous people have destroyed their careers because of a post or a tweet or a comment that went public? How many times have lives been ruined for a line of cocaine? The promise of an extraordinary payday, the prospect of a promotion, a position of power, the possibility to become famous. How many ordinary people are living in the consequences of decisions made because it looked good, was pleasing to the eye, but it led to death? It happened right back in the garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of the both were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What Eve saw looked good and was pleasing to the eye, but it led to death. We fell for it then. And friends, sadly, we've been falling for it ever since. Because there is one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We have an enemy. Why do we do stupid things, make bad choices that we know will break up families, damage a marriage, end up in prison, destroy a career, cause us to lie to those we love, draw us away from what we believe? Because we have an enemy whose most fundamental identity is the tempter. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden, and that's what he's been doing ever since, and that's what he's doing today. And that's what he'll do in your life if you give him a chance. Ephesians tells us that the battle that we face is not against flesh and blood. It is against the devil's schemes. So when you're praying that God will crush evil, you're not actually asking him to crush people, right? Some people have a real problem with that. You just need to get that clear. You're asking God to fight the battle in the heavenly realms, which is the battle against the devil's schemes. His fundamental weapon is temptation, which is why Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the Pope's trying to change that line, apparently, because he doesn't like it. Because it implies that God leads us into temptation. Well, I'm not the Pope. I'm not even the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm not even the most important person in the Baptist church. 
well, I don't really think we need to change it. You get the point. God does not lead you into temptation. You do that because you listen to the evil one. Now, the Pope may come up with some words that we like better, but it will mean exactly the same thing. We are not the first people to be tempted and to fall into temptation. You might be surprised to know. It happened to the Israelites. And Paul, reflecting on that, writing to followers of Christ in Corinth, has some helpful things to say which might be helpful to us today. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to enjoy, indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So then, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The Israelites got themselves into trouble when they were in the desert by falling into temptation. If you go and read the story of the Exodus, you'll read it all there. And here are some things we might learn from what Paul says about that. First, verse 13, you will be tempted. You will. Jesus was tempted. They might read that later on if we've got time. If Jesus, the only person ever to live a perfect life, was tempted, then what right or reason do you have to think that it won't happen to you? Temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus tells us to pray for the ability to resist temptation. So the question now becomes, friends, how are you doing? How are you doing with temptation? Some years ago now, there was a psychology experiment done with children aged four years old, and it was designed to see how well they could resist temptation. They were put in a room on their own with a table and a chair, and on the table was one marshmallow. They were told that if they waited until the adult came back into the room without eating the marshmallow, they would be given two marshmallows. And then they left the children to see what happened. Two distinct groups of children emerged from the experiment. There was the eat it now group, and there was the resist it group. So some of them couldn't help themselves, and they ate it anyway. Others waited until the adult came back in the room and were duly rewarded with a second marshmallow. Here's the interesting bit. Years later, when the children had grown up, the team met them to see how they were doing in life. The results are remarkable. The resistant group were found to be more socially competent, more decisive, have higher levels of self-esteem, less anger management issues, lower behavioral challenges, and lower divorce rates. Go figure. Here's an 
interesting and challenging question. What's your marshmallow? Another way of asking the question might be this. What are you, or where are you, most vulnerable to temptation? And my best guess is you don't even have to think about that, because you know. It's right there in front of you. Now here's the thing, right? The devil is not stupid. He will not try to tempt you where you are less likely to be tempted. His aim is to pull you away and draw you away from Christ. So here's the question again. What is most likely to pull you or draw you away from God? The devil knows that this is not trivial stuff and his greatest desire is to draw you away from God. He does. That's what he wants to do. But the devil won't come to me and say, Ian, I've got a thought. Choose death. Gosh, he knows that even I'm not that stupid. He knows it won't work. He will tempt me with something that he knows might work. And he will do the same for you. Lead us not into temptation is sometimes translated, lead us not into testing or times of trial. Um, Abraham was tested when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. Remember that story? Um, we have a kind of view of what temptation might look like. We get that dynamic. We understand what that means. But times of testing can also draw us away from God. Interestingly, in the bit I read you from Corinthians... Um, it's grumbling against God. The Israelites are grumbling against God and it drew them away from him and made their hearts hard towards God. How are you doing on that front? When it gets tough, do you grumble against God? Because it has the effect of drawing you away from God. How is your relationship with God? In 1 Corinthians 10, the bit I read, you can check this out afterwards if you don't agree with me, there are four kinds of temptations mentioned. There is idolatry, sex, testing God, and grumbling. Um, testing God might be described as shaking your fist at God. Ever done that? That's a challenging thought, isn't it? Perhaps you don't think grumbling is a problem. How are you doing on the grumbling front? I have to say that's a, that is a real challenge to me. I realised when I was writing this quite how much low-level grumbling I'm capable of. And the trouble with low-level grumbling is it stacks up over time. And then it becomes really easy to grumble. Now, the devil is clever. He won't just tempt you to do what's wrong. He will also tempt you to not do what is right. I have a friend in ministry who says, Ian, I've figured out what you have to do in ministry. You have to figure out what's right and keep doing it. 
You can do that in life. Figure out what's right and keep doing it. And the devil will tempt you not to do it. Now, but here's the thing, right? The devil can only tempt you. He cannot destroy you. He can only tempt you. He cannot destroy you. And this is the battle for your soul. So how are you doing, friends? Second thing to note from the Corinthians passage, God knows what you can bear and he will never let you go beyond it. In Bug's Life, and that's the reason I showed you this clip, Bug's Life are the immortal words as the bug flies towards the light. Oh, I can't help it! I couldn't help it. Now, friends, as a follower of Christ, that is simply not true. You can. I don't know how else I can say that. <coughs> I can't help it is not true. You can. You can because God knows where you will be tempted and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's what's true. With God's help, you can always resist temptation. Always. James 4, 7 says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or I could emphasize it slightly differently and read it this way. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will. How are you doing, friends? Third thing from what Paul writes, God will provide a way out. You can so that you can stand up against temptation. Now, John Ortberg, writing on this, suggests there are three things you can do to help you stand up against temptation. First, you can cultivate joy in your heart. He suggests that the greatest weapon and the greatest emotional resource against temptation is joy. So how much joy do you have, friends? Now remember, of course, joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is all about circumstances. Joy is about God and who he is, right? You've got that one clear. So you can be joyful even in the most difficult of circumstances. You might not be happy, but you can be joyful. Joy comes from a deep sense of knowing and honoring God. Nehemiah 8.10 says this, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. How are you doing? Let me ask the question this way. What kind of things lead us to fall into temptation? I'm going to take a punt, right? The answer might be these things. Boredom. Then something looks good and pleasing to the eye, right? You get that. Dissatisfaction. Grumbling. They've always got it better than me. I wish I had a better paid job. All that kind of stuff. Impatience. A sense of entitlement. <coughs> a joyful heart, an authentically joyful heart, will make temptation seem less attractive. If you want to resist temptation, cultivate joy in your heart. How do you cultivate joy? Choose to do God-honoring activities that bring you joy. 
You know that thing about the quiet time where you're supposed to sit in a room really, really early in the morning and spend an hour in there reading the Bible and understanding Leviticus? Right? Well, that only works for very, very few people. And one of them might be you, and if it's you, I rejoice. You might be one of those people, and I know some of them, who the best way they connect with God is to go for a walk in the woods. And at that point in time, they are really connecting with God. I do it in the gym, although sometimes it means I run into the thing on the treadmill and nearly fall off. And sometimes it means I take a breath when I've not actually got my head out of the water. And I swallow a bit of water and it brings me up start short. Some days I can do it and some days I can't. Find things you enjoy doing and engage with God. That is how you cultivate joy in your life. So it would be okay to say to somebody, I'm going for a walk in the park and I'm having my quiet time. Brilliant. Some people connect through music. Some people connect through books. Find your way of connecting and do it. And fill your heart with joy. And this might seem an odd thing, but cultivating joy is a discipline. But it's one that protects your very soul. Second, cultivate accountability. Have the courage to build authentic relationships that hold you accountable. I went out for dinner with somebody the other week, and they said to me, right in the middle of it, they said, I'm telling you this in to hold me accountable. I need to pick up with them because I need to ask them what exactly they meant by holding accountable. What am I supposed to be doing? But find people who will hold you accountable. There's, one, there's a reason that this prayer begins with the words, Our Father. It is much harder to resist temptation on your own. That's why Jesus invites us to do this together. Our Father. Because the truth is, the enemy is stronger than any one of us. And he's going to keep going and keep going and keep going and find your weak point and keep going and keep going and keep going. And you need friends to help you. On our own, we are much more likely to give in to temptation. Here's a good and important question you might want to ask. Who do I know and trust and who knows where I am most vulnerable. Who do I know and trust and who knows where I am most vulnerable? Another good question might be, out of this talk this morning, what do I need to put in place in my life to keep me from falling into temptation? What do I need to put in place to keep me from falling into temptation? Third, if you want to resist temptation, immerse yourself in Scripture. That is exactly what Jesus does. Now, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to read in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, you'll remember that famous passage where Jesus is tempted. And if you're familiar with it, you will know that each time Jesus is tempted by the evil one, he responds with Scripture. So the question is, friends, how well do you know your Bible? I have to say this, and it's sometimes me, but I'm always disappointed when I hear somebody say, oh, there's a verse somewhere in the Bible, but I don't really know where it is, and then they trot out the verse. Well, you ought to know where it is. It'd be a good thing to know where it is, because it might be that you're quoting it wrong. It's always good to know the Bible. Immerse yourself in Scripture. Jesus is the lover of your soul, friends, and you will learn about him and you will learn about the one who loves you if you immerse yourself in Scripture. So how are you doing, friends? Jesus is the lover of your soul. 
Remember, he loves you because 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 he loves you. That's why he tells you to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is one who comes to kill, steal and destroy and he wants to pull you away from your relationship with God. His best weapon is temptation. I used to joke that the only thing I can't resist is temptation. Well, I am relieved to know that as a follower of Christ, that is profoundly untrue. I'm not going to say that anymore. With God's help, the help of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and my own choice to follow God and honour him, I can resist the devil and he will flee from me. And you can do the same. The devil might prowl around like a hungry lion looking for someone to devour, somebody like me, but I am on God's side. The one who loves me because he loves me because he loves me because he loves me because he loves me. And whose love reaches to me always. Remember, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, there are lots of things that will make it difficult and temptation is right up there at the top of the list, but nothing will separate you from God's love. And his love has won the victory, friend. Now, I think I've said all that quite well. However, here's another way of saying exactly the same thing, friends. And if you can engage with the words of this song that Meg and I are going to sing to you, because this is all about cultivating joy. This is all about recognizing who we are in God and living in the truth of that and I am more and more convinced that the more we live in the truth of who we are in God, the better we will be able to resist the evil one. You 
when I am falling short, when I don't belong, you say I am yours, and I believe, I believe what you say of me, I believe. The only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. In you I find my worth, in you I find my identity. When I can feel a thing You say I am strong When I think I am weak You say I am held When I am falling short When I don't belong Now you say I am yours And I I believe Taking all I have and now I'm laying it at your feet You have every failure, God, you'll have every Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.